Chapter Twelve of Don O'Hara, The Girl Who Laughed. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Leanne Howlett. Don O'Hara, The Girl Who Laughed by Edna Ferber. Chapter Twelve Benny the Consoler. In a corner of Frau Nurlanger's bedroom, sheltered from draughts and glaring light, is a little wooden bed, painted blue and ornamented with stout red roses that are faded by time and much abuse. Every evening at eight o'clock, three anxious-browed women hold low-spoken conclave about the quaint old bed, while its occupant sleeps and smiles as he sleeps, and clasps to his breast a chewed-looking woolly dog. For a new joy has come to the sad little Frau Nurlanger, and I— quite by accident, was the cause of bringing it to her. The queer little blue bed, with its faded roses, was brought down from the attic by Frau Knopf, for she is one of the three foster mothers of the small occupant of the bed. The occupant of the bed is named Benny, and a corporation formed for the purpose of bringing him up in the way he should go is composed of Don O'Hara Orme, President and Distracted Guardian, Mrs. Conrad Nurlanger, cuddler-in-chief and authority on the subject of Benny's bedtime, Mr. Blackie Griffith, good angel, general cut-up, and monitor often Benny's neckties and toys, Dr. Ernst von Gerhard, chief medical adviser, and sweller of the exchequer, with the privilege of selecting all candies. Members of the corporation meet with great frequency evenings and Sundays, much to the detriment of a certain book in the making with which Don O'Hara Orme was wont to struggle o' evenings. Benny had been one of those little tragedies that find their way into juvenile court. Benny's story was common enough, but Benny himself had been different. Ten minutes after his first appearance in the courtroom, everyone, from the big bald judge to the newest probation officer, had fallen in love with him. Somehow you wanted to smooth the hair from his forehead, tip his pale little face upward, and very gently kiss his smooth white brow, which alone was enough to distinguish Benny, for juvenile court children, as a rule, are distinctly not kissable. Benny's mother was accused of being unfit to care for her boy, and Benny was temporarily installed in the detention home. There the superintendent and his plump and kindly wife had fallen head over heels in love with him, and had dressed him in a smart little Norfolk suit and a frivolous plaid silk tie. There were delays in the case, and postponement after postponement, so that Benny appeared in the courtroom every Tuesday for four weeks. The reporters and the probation officers and policemen became very chummy with Benny, and showered him with bright new pennies and certain wonderful candies. Superintendent Arnett of the detention home was as proud of the boy as though he were his own, and when Benny would look shyly and questioningly into his face for permission to accept the proffered offerings, the big superintendent would chuckle delightedly. Benny had a strangely mobile face for such a baby, and the whitest, smoothest brow I have ever seen. The comedy and tears and misery and laughter of the big white-walled courtroom were too much for Benny. He would gaze about with puzzled blue eyes, then giving up the situation as something too vast for his comprehension, he would fall to drawing curlicues on a bit of paper with a great yellow pencil presented him by one of the newspaper men. Every Tuesday the rows of benches were packed with a motley crowd of Poles, Russians, Slavs, Italians, Greeks, Lithuanians, 
a crowd made up of fathers, mothers, sisters, brothers, aunts, uncles, neighbors, friends, and enemies of the boys and girls whose fate was in the hands of the big man seated in the revolving chair up in front. But Benny's mother was not of this crowd, this pitiful, ludicrous crowd filling the great room with the stifling, rancid odor of the poor. Nor was Benny. He sat, clear-eyed and unsmiling, in the depths of a great chair on the court side of the railing, and gravely received the attentions of the lawyers and reporters and courtroom attachés who had grown fond of the grave little figure. Then, on the fifth Tuesday, Benny's mother appeared. How she had come to be that child's mother, God only knows, or perhaps he had had nothing to do with it. She was terribly sober and frightened. Her face was swollen and bruised, and beneath one eye there was a puffy green and blue swelling. Her sordid story was common enough as the probation officer told it. The woman had been living in one wretched room with the boy. Her husband had deserted her. There was no food and little furniture. The queer feature of it, said the probation officer, was that the woman managed to keep the boy fairly neat and clean, regardless of her own condition, and he generally had food of some sort, although the mother sometimes went without food for days. Through the squalor and misery and degradation of her own life, Benny had somehow been kept unsullied, a thing apart. Hmm said Judge Wheeling, and looked at Benny. Benny was standing beside his mother. He was very quiet, and his eyes were smiling up into those of the battered creature who was fighting for him. "'I guess we'll have to take you out of this,' the judge decided abruptly. "'That boy is too good to go to waste.' The sodden, dazed woman before him did not immediately get the full meaning of his words. She still stood there, swaying a bit, and staring unintelligently at the judge. Then quite suddenly she realized it. She took a quick step forward. Her hand went up to her breast, to her throat, to her lips, with an odd, stifled gesture. "'You ain't going to take him away, from me. No, you wouldn't do that, would you? Not for, not for always. You wouldn't do that, you wouldn't.' Judge Wheeling waved her away, but the woman dropped to her knees. "'Judge, give me a chance. I'll stop drinking. Only don't take him away from me. Don't, Judge, don't.' He's all I've got in the world. Give me a chance. Three months, six months, a year. Get up, ordered Judge Wheeling gruffly, and stop that. It won't do you a bit of good. And then a wonderful thing happened. The woman rose to her feet. A new and strange dignity had come into her battered face. The lines of suffering and vice were erased as by magic, and she seemed to grow taller, younger, almost beautiful. When she spoke again, it was slowly and distinctly, her words quite free from the blur of the barroom and street vernacular. "'I tell you, you must give me a chance. You cannot take a child from a mother in this way. I tell you, if you will only help me, I can crawl back up the road that I've traveled. I was not always like this. There was another life, before, before, oh, since then there have been years of blackness and hunger and cold and worse, but I never dragged the boy into it. Look at him. Our eyes traveled from the woman's transfigured face to that of the boy. We could trace a wonderful likeness where before we had seen none, but the woman went on in her steady, even tone. I can't talk as I should because my brain isn't clear. It's the drink. When you drink, you forget. But you must help me. I can't do it alone. I can remember how to live straight, just as I can remember how to talk straight. Let me show you that I'm not all bad. Give me a chance. Take the boy and then give him back to me when you are satisfied. I'll try. God only knows how I'll try. 
Only don't take him away forever, Judge. Don't do that. Judge Wheeling ran an uncomfortable finger around his collar's edge. Any friends living here? No, no. Sure about that? Quite sure. Now see here. I'm going to give you your chance. I shall take this boy away from you for a year. In that time you will stop drinking and become a decent self-supporting woman. You will be given in charge of one of these probation officers. She will find work for you and a good home, and she'll stand by you, and you must report to her. If she is satisfied with you at the end of the year, the boy goes back to you. She will be satisfied, the woman said simply. She stooped and, taking Benny's face between her hands, kissed him once. Then she stepped aside and stood quite still, looking after the little figure that passed out of the courtroom with his hand in that of a big, kindly police officer. She looked until the big door had opened and closed upon them. Then, well, it was just another newspaper story. It made a good one. That evening I told Frau Nurlanger about it, and she wept, softly, and murmured, Ach, das arm baby! Like my little Oscar he is, without a mother. I told Ernst about him, too, and Blackie, because I could not get his grave little face out of my mind. I wondered if those who had charge of him now would take the time to bathe the little body, and brush the soft hair until it shone, and tie the gay plaid silk tie as lovingly as Daddy Arnett of the detention home had done. Then it was that I, quite unwittingly, stepped into Benny's life. There was an anniversary, or a change in the board of directors, or a new coat of paint or something of the kind in one of the orphan homes, and the story fell to me. I found the orphan home to be typical of its kind, a big, dreary, prison-like structure. The woman at the door did not in the least care to let me in. She was a fish-mouthed woman with a hard eye, and as I told my errand, her mouth grew fishier and the eye harder. Finally she led me down a long, dark, airless stretch of corridor, and departed in search of the matron, leaving me seated in the unfriendly reception-room, with its straight-backed chairs placed stonily against the walls, beneath rows of red and blue and yellow religious pictures. Just as I was wondering why it seemed impossible to be holy and cheerful at the same time, there came a pad-padding down the corridor. The next moment the matron stood in the doorway. She was a mountainous, red-faced woman with warts on her nose. "'Good afternoon,' I said sweetly. "'Ooh, what a brute,' I thought. Then I began to explain my errand once more. "'Criticism of the home?' "'No, indeed,' I assured her. At last, convinced of my disinterestedness, she reluctantly guided me about the big, gloomy building. There were endless flights of shiny stairs and endless stuffy, airless rooms, until we came to a door which she flung open, disclosing the nursery. It seemed to me that there were a hundred babies, babies at every stage of development, of all sizes and ages and types. They glanced up at the opening of the door, and then a dreadful thing happened. Every child that was able to walk or creep scuttled into the farthest corners and remained quite, quite still, with a wide-eyed expression of fear and apprehension on every face. For a moment my heart stood still. I turned to look at the woman by my side. Her thin lips were compressed into a straight, hard line. She said a word to a nurse standing near, and began to walk about, eyeing the children sharply. She put out a hand to pat the head of one red-haired mite in a soiled pinafore, but before her hand could descend, I saw the child dodge, and the tiny hand flew up to the head as though in defense. They are afraid of her, my sick heart told me. Those babies are afraid of her. What does she do to them? I can't stand this. I'm going. 
I mumbled a hurried thank you to the fat matron as I turned to leave the big bare room. At the head of the stairs there was a great black door. I stopped before it, God knows why, and pointed toward it. What is in that room? I asked. Since then I have wondered many times at the unseen power that prompted me to put the question. The stout matron bustled on, rattling her keys as she walked. That, oh, that's where we keep the incorrigibles. May I see them? I asked, again prompted by that inner voice. There is only one. She grudgingly unlocked the door, using one of the great keys that swung from her waist. The heavy black door swung open. I stepped into the bare room, lighted dimly by one small window. In the farthest corner crouched something that stirred and glanced up at our entrance. It peered at us with an ugly look of terror and defiance, and I stared back at it in the dim light. During one dreadful breathless second I remained staring while my heart stood still. Then— "'Benny!' I cried and stumbled toward him. Benny, boy! The little unkempt figure in its soiled knickerbocker suit, the sunny hair all uncared for, the gay plaid tie draggled and limp, rushed into my arms with a crazy inarticulate cry. Down on my knees on the bare floor I held him close, close, and his arms were about my neck as though they never should unclasp. Take me away, take me away! His wet cheek was pressed against my own streaming one. I want my mother. I want Daddy Arnett. Take me away. I wiped his cheeks with my notebook or something, picked him up in my arms, and started for the door. I had quite forgotten the fat matron. What are you doing? she asked, blocking the doorway with her huge bulk. I'm going to take him back with me. Please let me. I'll take care of him until the year is up. He shan't bother you any more. That is impossible, she said coldly. He has been sent here by the court for a year, and he must stay here. Besides, he is a stubborn, uncontrollable child. Uncontrollable? He's nothing of the kind. Why don't you treat him as a child should be treated, instead of like a little animal? You don't know him. Why, he's the most lovable—I—and he's only a baby. Can't you see that? A baby. She only stared her dislike, her little pig eyes grown smaller and more glittering. "'You great big thing!' I shrieked at her like an infuriated child. With the tears streaming down my cheeks, I unclasped Benny's cold hands from about my neck. He clung to me frantically until I had to push him away and run. The woman swung the door shut and locked it, but for all its thickness I could hear Benny's helpless fists pounding on its panels as I stumbled down the stairs, and Benny's voice came faintly to my ears, muffled by the heavy door, as he shrieked to me to take him away to his mother and to Daddy Arnett. I blubbered all the way back in the car until everyone stared, but I didn't care. When I reached the office I made straight for Blackie's smoke-filled sanctum. When my tale was ended he let me cry all over his desk, with my head buried in a heap of galley-proofs and my tears watering his paste-pot. He sat calmly by, smoking. Finally he began gently to philosophize. Now, girl, he's probably better off there than he ever was at home with his mother soused all the time. Maybe he give that warty matron friend of yours all kinds of trouble, yelling for his ma. I raised my head from the desk. Oh, you can talk. You didn't see him. What do you care? But if you could have seen him, crouched there alone like a little animal. He was so sweet and lovable, and, and he hadn't been decently washed for weeks, and his arms clung to me. I can feel his hands about my neck. I buried my head in the papers again. Blackie went on smoking. 
There was no sound in the little room except the purr-purring of Blackie's pipe. Then, "'I done a favor for Wheeling once,' mused he. I glanced up quickly. "'Oh, Blackie, do you think?' "'No, I don't. But then again you can't never tell. That was four or five years ago, and the memory of past favors grows dim fast. Still, if you're through water in the top of my desk, why, well, I'd like to sit down and do a little real brisk talkin' over the phone. You're excused.' Quite humbly I crept away, with hope in my heart. To this day I do not know what secret string the resourceful Blackie pulled, but the next afternoon I found a hastily scrawled note tucked into the roll of my typewriter. It sent me scuttling across the hall to the sporting editor's smoke-filled room, and there on a chair beside the desk, surrounded by scrapbooks, lead pencils, paste-pot, and odds and ends of newspaper office paraphernalia, sat Benny. His hair was parted very smoothly on one side and under his dimpled chin bristled a very new and extremely lively green and red plaid silk tie. The next instant I had swept aside papers, brushes, pencils, books, and Benny was gathered close in my arms. Blackie, with a strange glow in his deep-set black eyes, regarded us with an assumed disgust. "'Women is all alike. Ain't it the truth? I used to think you was different. But shucks, it ain't so. Got to turn on the weeps the minute you're tickled or mad.' Why, say, I ain't going to have you coming in here and dampening up the whole place every little while. It's unhealthy for me, sitting here in the wet. Oh, shut up, Blackie, I said happily. How in the world did you do it? Never you mind. The question is, what you going to do with him now you've got him? Going to have a French bunny for him or fetch him up by hand? Wheeling appointed a probation skirt to look after the crowd of us, and we got to tow the mark. Glory be, I ejaculated. I don't know what I shall do with him. I shall have to bring him down with me every morning, and perhaps you can make a sporting editor out of him. Nix, not with that forehead. He's a highbrow. We'll make him dramatic, critic. In the meantime, I'll be little fairy godmother, and if you'll get on your bonnet, I'll stake you and the young into strawberry shortcake and chocolate ice cream. So it happened that a wondering Frau Knopf and a sympathetic Frau Nurlanger were called in for consultation an hour later. Benny was ensconced in my room, very wide-eyed and wondering, but quite content. With the entrance of Frau Lurlanger, the consultation was somewhat disturbed. She made a quick rush at him and gathered him in her hungry arms. "'Do, baby, do!' she cried. "'Do Kleiner!' And she was down on her knees, and somehow her figure had melted into delicious mother curves, with Benny's head just fitting into that most gracious one between her shoulder and breast. She cooed to him in a babble of French and German and English, calling him her little Oscar. Benny seemed miraculously to understand— Perhaps he was becoming accustomed to having strange ladies snatch him to their breasts. "'So,' said Frau Norlanger, looking up at us, "'is he not sweet? He shall be my little boy, nicht? For one small year he shall be my own boy. Ach, I am but lonely all the long day here in this strange land. You will let me care for him, nicht? And Conrad, he will be very angry, but that shall make no bit of difference. Eh, Oscar?' And so the thing was settled and an hour later three anxious-browed women were debating the weighty question of eggs or bread and milk for Benny's supper. Frau Nurlanger was for soft-boiled eggs as being none too heavy after orphan asylum fare. I was for bread and milk, that being the prescribed supper dish for all the orphans and waifs that I had ever read about, from the wide, wide world to Helen's babies and back again. Frau Knopf was for both eggs and bread and milk with a dash of meat and potatoes thrown in for good measure and a slice or so of cooking on the side. We compromised on one egg, one glass of milk, and a slice of lavishly buttered bread and jelly. 
It was a clean, sweet, sleepy-eyed Benny that we tucked between the sheets. We three women stood looking down at him as he lay there in the quaint, old, blue-painted bed that had once held the plump little Knopf's. "'You think anyway he had enough supper?' mused the anxious-browed Frau Knopf. "'To school he will have to go, yes?' murmured Frau Nerlanger regretfully. I tucked in the covers at one side of the bed, not that they needed tucking, but because it was such a comfortable, satisfying thing to do. "'Just at this minute,' I said as I tucked, "'I'd rather be a newspaper reporter than anything else in the world. "'As a profession, tis so broadening, and at the same time so chancy.'" End of chapter 12